Good morning, church. Today we'll be reading in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the bread of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. This is the word of God. Good morning, church. Today we are launching into a new series, five-week series, on the book of Habakkuk. And the series is subtitled, From Why to Worship. There's a book that actually had that as a subtitle, so we, we borrowed that, uh, From Why to Worship. Habakkuk is a small, tiny book, obscure, New Old Testament, minor prophet. Uh, you might even still be trying to find where it is uh, in your Bible. That's okay. Uh, it's really short. If you're past the, you know, the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, keep going. Habakkuk. Most Christians have never read or studied this book. And so you might be asking, why do a series on an obscure minor prophet with a goofy name? And the answer is because it is extremely relevant for our lives today. In fact, Habakkuk contains one of the most authentic and honest conversations between a prophet and God that we see in all of Scripture. What we see in Habakkuk is this journey from asking the why questions of God through his experience with God, ultimately landing him to a place where he worships God in the midst of his circumstances, in the midst of his trials, in the midst of not having any, any really of his, answer, of his questions answered in the way that he would like. He moves, as we see the progression from why in chapter 1 to waiting in chapter 2 to worship in chapter 3. Today's message, as we begin this book, is when life doesn't make sense. Habakkuk looks around him and realizes that much of what he believes, especially about God, doesn't match up with what he sees here on earth. And so he begins to ask the tough questions of God about the things that don't make sense to him. 
And I, I was just thinking this week, have you ever stopped and thought about how many things in life really don't make sense? You know, we're going to get into, it's going to get kind of heavy, so let's start kind of light. I was just thinking, there's a lot in this world that don't make sense. For instance, why do we call it the Baltimore-Washington Parkway when we drive on it and then call it our driveway when we park in it? You ever wonder why? That's so weird. That's annoying. It doesn't make sense. The worst one is why we say, oh, I slept like a baby. I slept like a baby. What? That doesn't make any sense. Babies don't sleep well. The person who came up with that didn't have babies. Babies get up several hours a night. After two to three hours, they're waking up. Listen, they should say, I slept like a teenager. Right? Because we know they'll sleep forever. You see, it just doesn't make sense. I could go on and on. Right? There's lots of things that don't make sense. Well, what about the weightier things in life that really matter and still don't make sense? Why does God allow evil to happen? Why are there diseases? How long will I struggle with this sexual desire? Why can't I find a spouse? Why did my spouse leave me? Will my child ever turn back to the Lord? You see, in Habakkuk, we find a prophet, a prophet wrestling with the difficult questions of life, and he's questioning, ultimately, the fairness of God. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. This is a prophet. He was called by God himself to speak for God himself and was recognized by the people as such. And what do we find this man of God doing? He's lamenting. He's complaining. He's asking questions of the very God who, whom he was called to speak on behalf of. And he asked two main questions. Why and how long? Isn't that where many of us struggle today? How long, O oh Lord? And why? By far, the number one reason people reject religion in general and even Christianity specifically is the issue of how a good and powerful God could allow evil to happen. You talk to people, and I've talked to lots of people in our community, around the world, and it's the number one reason that people cannot commit to a religion and to to Christianity. But the truth is, that's a struggle for us as believers too, isn't it? We're not exempt from those doubts. Sooner or later, every single one of us will be confronted with the tension between what we believe about God and what we see in the world around us. For me, I was just a boy when my world was flipped upside down when I got the news that my dad, my beloved dad, my amazing dad, suddenly passed away in the hospital after a surgery. And it didn't make any sense whatsoever. There was nothing God could have said to make that make sense to me. And it rocked me to the core. You see, I knew God was loving and strong, so why would he make me fatherless the rest of my life? And for that matter, my heart would continue on. Why are there so many around me who still have their fathers? I don't know what the issue is for you. I don't know what you have experienced or what you might experience even tomorrow or next year. But at some point you will find that your experience does not match your beliefs. 
And so what do you do with that tension? That's the question. You see, we're trying to teach our children about Jesus. We're trying to teach them the Bible and they grow up to become students and things are a lot more complicated and harder and then go off to college and, and then they really experience all kinds of things they, they never could have imagined and they're inculcated by professors who are wildly anti-Christian and then they come to realize like, wait, does this even, do I, should I even believe this? How do I even know this is true? We got to show them their questions matter to God. The prophet, prophet Habakkuk gives us a surprising answer. What do you do with that tension? And he says, take it to God. Take it directly to God. Wrestle things out with God. Habakkuk undermines the false sentiment among Christians that genuine faith removes all doubts and questions. It doesn't. It doesn't. What genuine faith does is it drives you to seek God with your doubts and your questions. And really, in that seeking, in that seeking of God with your questions, you discover something better than the answers to your specific questions. Let's look at what Habakkuk says as we begin this book. The first lesson is this. In the confusion and pain of living in a broken world, lament is a lifeline for your faith. In the confusion and pain and uncertainty of living in a broken world, lament, biblical lament, is a lifeline for your faith. Notice verse 1 says, the oracle that prophet Habakkuk saw. The word oracle means pronouncement, but it really means lift up. That's the core idea of this word oracle. It's something you lift up. It has the idea of being a burden. The dialogue between God and Habakkuk is his his burden. It was a heavy load. And to be honest, it reflects our burden too. Habakkuk was living at the end of the 7th century BC. He witnessed the reign of a godly king named King Josiah. Josiah was radically converted when he was a young man and he discovered God's law. And, and he was like, what is this? And, and he asked him to read it to him. And he reads God's law and he's convicted in his heart and he's transformed by God's word. And he starts making all kinds of spiritual reforms for the nation of Judah. And, and he tears down pagan altars and he, and he restores the temple and the people turn back to the Lord. It's a time of, of, of revitalization in the nation. But sadly, Josiah was followed by his son, Jehoiakim. And he basically undid all the things that his father had instituted. He, he led his people to reject God's law again. He, they perverted justice. And all the while, he and all the people still expected God to bless them. Right? We're still God's people. And so Habakkuk witnesses the crumbling of the moral fabric of his people. He watches his people drift away from God and the law, and it had disastrous consequences for society. He was living in a culture that was full of immorality and greed and deception and injustice and hypocrisy and oppression. Sound familiar? Just look at what Habakkuk describes when he's seeing. Notice the words. He says in verse 2, Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you make me look at wrong, destruction, violence, strife, contention? Justice is perverted. And this drives him, all of this together, drives him 
to cry out to God in verse 2 and 3 saying, Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Can you feel the emotion just jumping out of the page? Here's a prophet of God questioning God. How long will you wait to answer me, he says. How how long must I cry out and you do nothing? And for that matter, why do you make me force me to look at injustice? Why do you even tolerate wrong to begin with? You see, Habakkuk is not just wrestling with the problem of evil. He's wrestling with God. There's an intensity to these questions here. And his two main questions, how long and why? These two questions are at the heart of our wrestling with God. How long must I endure this suffering? How long will I deal with a wayward child? How long will I endure the rejection from a parent? How long will I have to endure this disease? How long will I struggle with my self-image? How long will I feel the pain of losing a loved one? How long? Listen, let me ask you this, and maybe it's something you can reflect on this afternoon. If you could ask God any how long question, what would your question to him be? How long? And then he gets to the why question in verse 3. This actually cuts even deeper, doesn't it? It, it, it gets to not just to the timing of God, but to the motivation of God. Why would you allow this evil to happen to me? Why do I have to struggle with a mood disorder? Why can't I catch a break financially? Why did you have to marry me? Why did I have to marry someone with these struggles or these issues? Why does my child have to suffer? Why did you take my dad at such an early age? If you could ask God any why question, what would it be? I know some of you are thinking, this feels wrong. And I know that because you've told us. Right? To question God feels or seems like doubt or worse, unbelief. And here's what you need to understand. What, what Habakkuk is doing here is, is, what, is what's called lament. And I've, I've used this definition. I've, I've quoted it. Uh, Mark Vrogup's book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. I, I read it during my sabbatical couple summers ago. Lament is a prayer of pain that leads to trust. Lament is a prayer of pain that leads to trust. Lament gives voice to the strong emotions that believers feel because of the evil and suffering around them. Lament isn't just voicing your broken heart to God. It's this path that leads to ultimately from heartbreak to hope. But I'm going to take it even deeper because this isn't just lamenting. This is what we call biblical complaint. Complaint. It's a biblical term. If you have a Bible, you might even have a, a kind of a heading, Habakkuk's complaint. Not the kind of complaining that the Israelites did when they were in the wilderness, right? And they start complaining against God and grumbling against God. No, that was rooted in unbelief. That was sin. 
That's different than biblical complaint. Biblical complaint is being honest with God about what's wrong in life. Did you know there are more psalms of lament and complaint than there are psalms of thanksgiving? You ever wonder why? Why? Complaint is is a faith-based groaning of persistent trust. A faith-based groaning of persistent trust. Do you know that you can have faith even though you're voicing your struggles and your questions to God? In fact, there's a huge difference between complaining about God, which actually can be dangerous and sinful, or complaining to God, which is suffering face-to-face with God, quorum Deo, which means face-to-face with God. Habakkuk cries out because of the severity of sin. He laments in verse 4, the law is paralyzed. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice is, goes forth paralyzed. It's perverted. He says no one cares about God's law. The the righteous are being destroyed. Violence runs rampant. There's corruption, conflict, and strife. But the worst part about it is, the worst part about it is, God is tolerating it. Habakkuk is feeling like, God, you're sitting back doing nothing. Do something, he says. Can you see how this kind of complaint is actually rooted in faith and not in unbelief? He wouldn't be going to God unless he believed God was listening. Do you realize it? It's a bit ironic. How come you're not listening to me, God? And what's he doing? Talking to God, who he says is not listening. The opposite of complaint is to deny or diminish our suffering. That's what a lot of people do. How's it going? Eh, It's not that bad. Oh yeah, my mom's in the hospital, or I just lost my, lost my job. No, it's not, it's not that bad. I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm going to get through it. We arrogantly refuse to, to be humbled by what's going on in life. And so we, God calls us, share our suffering with Him, and that expresses our dependence on Him. And ultimately, it will lead to trust, greater trust in Him. This is what it looks like. Habakkuk shows us what it looks like to suffer Quorum Deo, face-to-face with God. Listen, lament and even complaint is a lifeline for our faith. Lesson two. God is at work and in control, no matter how bleak your situation seems. What happens, notice verses two through four, he's presenting his complaint to God. He's crying out to God. What does God do in response? You realize verse 5 through 11 is God's response to Habakkuk. What does God do? Habakkuk cries out to him, How long, O Lord? Why are you doing this? Does God strike him with lightning and say, How dare you? Don't talk to me like that. Does he rebuke him and say, Shut your mouth, boy? No, it's not in my Bible. What does he do? He answers his complaint. He literally says in verse 5, look among the nations. He's literally saying, come here, come close, Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, here's what I'm going to do. I am raising up the Chaldeans. 
the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome and their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In other words, they, they pervert justice. They have no dignity. They try to define justice themselves. God says, Habakkuk, you've been asking some really hard questions. You want answers? I'll give you some answers. Watch and be amazed, okay? It's crazy. It's so crazy what I'm going to do. You won't even believe it. Come here, let me tell you, I'm going to take care of the evil and injustice that you see in Israel. Your people have rejected me, largely. And Habakkuk is like, finally, God, you're going to do something. And then God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, a ruthless and violent people. They have no mercy. And they're going to sweep through, they sweep through the earth and they destroy everything in their path. God tells Habakkuk, I'm going to use the Babylonians, the evil and wicked Babylonians, to accomplish my divine will. Listen, the Babylonians are the epitome of evil in this day. They, they broke every standard of justice. They abided by no laws. At verse 7, you could read it. They were a law unto themselves. In other words, they thought they were God. Verse 7 through 11, God simply describes their arrogance and brutality in vivid terms. And God says, this is how I'm going to deal with the sin and idolatry of my people Israel. I'm going to send the Babylonians to discipline them. Obviously, Habakkuk is stunned. Wouldn't you be? Does it make any sense for God to punish evil with greater evil. It doesn't make sense to me. And it certainly didn't make sense to Habakkuk. And we're going to see next week, he cries out again, God, that's worse. I asked you to answer me and your answer is terrible. It's worse than anything I could have asked for. Imagine you're praying to God and, he, and you want him to answer and all of a sudden he does answer you. Would you like what he says? You see, we want God to answer us. But do we really want God to answer us? Or do we want God to answer us with what we want Him to answer us? Can God use evil to accomplish good? Let me start there. Can God use evil to accomplish good, church? Yes, we know that. I think all of us would, would immediately jump to Romans 8.28. We know God works all things together for good. But here's the harder question that I'm going to ask you to wrestle with. Does God ordain evil to accomplish good? Does he actually, is it a part of his plan? Is it not just something that happens and he responds to it, but is he actually ordaining evil to accomplish good? Does he actually cause harm to ultimately rescue us? And some of us would be like, ah, I got to find a theology that, that gets around that, that resolves that tension. I don't like that. Why? Because we read verse 6, for behold, I, the Lord is speaking, I am raising up the Chaldeans. He does not say I am allowing the Chaldeans to come. He does not say uh, well, they're going to do something and I'm going to respond. I am raising up the Chaldeans. Verse 5, I am doing a work. Who's in charge here? 
I know some of you want to push back. That's fine. But tell me, what do you hear here? What do you read? Read the Bible with me. Let's consider this together. He is actively ordaining Babylon to bring judgment. And this is where we, we get uncomfortable. You think I'm comfortable here, by the way? Yeah, I know some of you are like, Mark, you always pray. You think I'm comfortable saying this and, and believing this? No, this is uncomfortable for me too. Because I know what it means in my life and in our world. I know the implications. Some of us say, if God ordains evil, then he must be evil. It's just not true. We as humans are morally responsible for the evil we do. We make sinful choices out of sinful motives and sinful desires. And James 1 says, that's on us. Let no man say when he's tempted that God is tempting him. Because God cannot tempt anyone, nor is he tempted. But over and over, above all of our actions, whether good or evil, God is actively and sovereignly working to accomplish his good purposes. He said, that's not biblical. Okay, let me look at a couple more examples. We studied the book of Genesis, didn't we? We spent how many years in Genesis? We saw all the evil and the injustice done to Joseph by his brothers and his, fa- his family. Right? Joseph is beaten. He's thrown into a pit by his brothers, left for dead, eventually sold off into slavery, lied to, about his, uh, lied to his father about him being dead. His father lives all these years thinking his, his beloved son is de- dead. And Joseph is falsely accused and harassed by, by Potiphar's wife. He's forgotten in a prison by the cupbearer. And, and literally all this injustice, all this violence done to him, all this evil done to him. And after all the wounds and all the abuse and all the pain, what does Joseph say to his brothers? Not what you or I would say, because I know what I would say. Joseph looks his brothers in the eye, these And he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. He doesn't minimize their evil. He doesn't minimize what they've done. It was wrong. It destroyed his life. You meant evil against me. But God, what? Same word? Meant it? What is it? That evil that they just did, that they did? He meant it for good. God was not waiting for them to act and then responding to it by changing the situation. He was actively working through their sinful choices to bring about more good than anyone, even they, could have understood or fathomed. It brought about this uh, arrest, uh, and, and just the things that we know about. We don't even know all that God was doing, but the things that we know from that story, God brought restoration. He actually rescued his brothers from themselves through all of it. And he rescues the nation of Israel from the famine that would have threatened to destroy them. I could go on and on. I had five examples. I had to cut all of them out except this one. Maybe I'll just give you one more. It's the most important one. In Acts 2, Peter gives a speech. Remember to the people in Jerusalem who had come for the festival of Pentecost. People from all over the region. And he gets up, right? The spirit comes upon the, the, the disciples and the, the birth of the church, right? And he, he preaches and he, and he says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see how Peter deals with the tension? This is Peter, an apostle. He helped write the New Testament. And he says, the killing of Jesus was an act of sinful men. You did it, is what he tells them. And yet, over and above their sinful actions, he says, God had ordained it according to his plan. Why am I sharing all of this? Because part of how we navigate the why questions in life is wrestling with the character of God. Is God in control or not? That's a fundamental question you have to wrestle with. Is God in control or not? If he isn't, right? If he's kind of sitting back and he has the power to adjust things to work ultimately for his good, but he's not in control of evil, then listen, evil has free reign in our world and in our lives. Maybe God can use it for good, but ultimately it's outside of his control. I submit to you that's a terrible vision of God. Mostly because it's unbiblical. God is in control over the good and the bad. And while that may never get fully resolved in our minds, I I mean this and God means this to be good news because it means whatever God does allow in our lives must have a purpose. Even if I never understand it here on this side of heaven, whatever is happening here right now, whether personally, nationally, even globally, right? Don't think those kind of things are beyond his control. No, he's control of all of it. Whatever is happening, God has been vetting it by his good and gracious hand, and he has a greater understanding of all these things than I ever will on my best day. We must resist Judging God's actions and plans from our vantage point because we simply don't have the capacity to make that kind of determination. Isn't that what Job discovered? Job wasn't wrong for asking questions of God. Where he he went to miss was thinking that he could ultimately determine whether God was fair in the way he ruled in Job's life and in the world. And on all of Job's questioning and all of his struggles, at the end of the day, God says it was his miserable friends that were at fault, that were wrong, not Job. Yes, God is going to use the wicked Babylonians as discipline for his people, but, and they're going to be led into exile in just a few years, 10 years or less. But don't think that the Babylonians are God's ultimate plan for justice here, right? They're not God's, they're not God's blessing They're they're a part of how God is working, but ultimately, they're going to be judged. They're evil. Verse 11, they are guilty men whose own might is their God. God will not stand for that. Are you convinced that God is good even when life is bad? That's hard. If so, though, if you you continue to wrestle with that and you can get to a place where you say, God, I I believe that you are good even though life is hard, even though life is bad, you can, then no matter what comes your way, you can lament, you can cry out to God, but, but it can be rooted from a settled assurance. Didn't we just sing a song? This, this is my, this, this ballast is my assurance in the storms. 
my assurance, the settled assurance in your soul that God is still at work in everything that is happening, everything that is unfolding, and he is still in control. And you know what that assurance is called? It's called hope. Hope that if God is in control, he knows what he's doing, and if he is still, still good, he will give you everything you need to lead you through it. Lesson number three. God may not answer your specific questions, but he does answer your deepest questions. The two big questions Habakkuk asks, O Lord, how long and why? How long will I have to look at injustice and evil? And why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? Look at God's answer in verse 5 to 11. Look at his response. Does he, does he even begin to answer how long? No. He doesn't tell him. Does he even begin to answer why? No. He doesn't give him his timing or his reasoning. Listen. In lament, we bring our questions to God. In complaint, we, uh, we, we share our struggles with God as an act of faith. The very reason we voice our concerns to God is because we're convinced he's good, he's in control. But we need to understand there's nothing that says God has to answer our specific questions. Can you imagine if God showed you everything that he was going to do in your life? Could you imagine him showing up saying, here, you want my playbook? You, you want to see everything? Here it is. Here's, it from the, here's the end from the beginning. I'll show it all to you. Would you be able to handle that? A year ago, if God had told you what we were going to go through as a nation, as the world, as, a, as your family or individually, if God had showed you that, would you have been able to handle it? No way. If God had told me as a 12-year-old boy what, what would happen within a year, it would have been crushing. God never answers all of our questions. But, but, there is a but. He does give us a better answer to a better question. He does give us a better answer to the deeper question that all of us are asking. I know we're asking how long. I've asked how long in multiple situations. How long is it going to be this hard at work? How long is it going to be this hard in marriage? How long is it going to be this hard in parenting? Why, God? Why, why these struggles in my life? Why these issues in my relationships? Why? I ask all these questions all the time, and I don't get the answers. But here's the deeper question that I think you and I are always asking, that every human is asking, and that is this, in some form or fashion, we are all asking, God, are you really in control? In other words, are you really leading my life? And God, do you really love me? Am I loved by you? We can say with Habakkuk, how long will I cry out to you and will not save? And you know what God's answer is? Look and be amazed. For I'm doing a work that you would not believe if I told you. It's a similar answer to start. You, you, give, you want me to give you insight into what I'm doing? You can ask questions. I'm going to answer a different question. 
Because I hear the questions of your heart. I hear the questions of your heart, Mark. I know you want to know how long. I want to, I know you want to know why. But actually, I hear the question beneath the question mark. And here's what I'm going to answer you. Come, look. Come, come close. It's going to be so crazy you won't even believe it. And you know what his answer is? The cross. The cross. Because it sounds just as crazy and foolish as the Chaldeans. They heard the Chaldeans, Habakkuk hears Chaldeans, and he goes, that's ridiculous. God shows up and tells us, you know my answer to your deepest questions, the problems in your life, the evil in the world, the suffering in the world, my answer is the cross. And we go, are you, are you joking? How do we know that in the midst of a broken and evil world, God really is in control and really loves us? It's the cross and the empty tomb. They are the clearest terms uh, that he is for us and not against us. He has shown us the extent he will go to rescue us from our greatest enemies and that are sin, suffering, and death. And what does God do? When he, when he says, come close, and he says, listen, I'm going to send my perfect son, the, 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 the second person of the Trinity. He's been in heaven, in glory, basking in our community for all of eternity, and he's going to come down. He's going to step out of that. He's going to enter into your broken world. Why? Why would God do that? Not just because he, he cares about the world. It's because he loves you. It's because he came down for you. He literally came down to rescue you, to pursue you. You weren't looking for him, and yet God came looking for you. And he lived among us. He lived as one of us. Jesus was God in the flesh, tempted in every way, but never sinned. And yet what happens to him? What happens to the greatest human who ever lived? He was unjustly nailed to a cross. For a crime he didn't commit. Kind of sounds like Habakkuk, doesn't it? Why, do you, why is there violence all around me? Jesus was humiliated and rejected and shamed for all the world to see. And it looked like God's plan wasn't working, right? For everyone there, what did they say to him? If you were the Son of God, you would come down from that cross and prove it. Right? It looked like foolishness. He's being humiliated. He's being shamed on a cross. It didn't make sense. How could the beloved Son of God die? How could God will that His Son would die? How could Isaiah say in Isaiah 53 that it was the will of the Lord to crush Him? I could never do that. And what does Jesus say on the cross? Doesn't he say, doesn't he offer his own lament and complaint to God? My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? He's pouring out his own complaint to the Father. But for, but for Jesus, you know what? For Jesus, there was no answer. Habakkuk at least got an answer. For Jesus, there's no answer. There's no response. Why? Because in that moment, he is bearing the punishment for your sin and my sin. He's dying the death we deserved. He's taking our place. Listen, Habakkuk was right. Destruction and violence are before us. Justice truly goes perverted because the cross is the epitome of that. The epitome of injustice and the perversion of justice. And yet, in the midst of that evil, God says, look, I'm doing a work you couldn't believe if I told you. 
Because in the dying of my son Jesus, the debt of your sin will be paid for. Literally, he becomes sin for us. The killing of Jesus is the greatest evil ever, and God ordained it. And yet God says, listen, I want to answer your deepest questions. Because he's showing us in the midst of evil and suffering, he was still in control, and he still really loves us. Jesus died to destroy death and destroy sin. Jesus died to satisfy God's justice so that you and I can now be forgiven, so that you and I can now be adopted into his family, so that in the rising of Jesus from the tomb, and when he walks out of that grave alive, guess what? Jesus doesn't say, I can forgive your sin. He says, listen, it's cancer, diabetes, heart failure, COVID, whatever, you, you know, whatever you're dealing with, you know, that, that, that divorce, whatever, it can never separate you from my love because the worst that can happen to you is you get to the end of your life and you realize even that final breath, that final thing that says, ah, oh, it looks like death has won. Nope, because Jesus says, those who are my hands, no one can snatch them out of my hands. And he raises you up spiritually and you're with him forever and eternally and joyfully. That is such good news. And it gives us strength now. And it settles our hearts now. And it allows us to ask the questions that we do need to ask now, but knowing he answers our deeper questions ultimately. Our confidence is in a holy God, a God of holy love, who not just died and rose again, but promised, as we just sang, to come back and right every wrong and make all things new. Christian, make no mistake. You might want to write it and, and put it on your mirror, put it on your, on your refrigerator, whatever you need to do. You might want to have these words just really public. The best is yet to come. It always is. On your greatest days, when I saw my wife walk down the aisle, it was one of the greatest days of my life. Right? I was so happy I cried. That's not, that doesn't happen very often. Where you're so happy you cry. It was like heaven. It doesn't even compare to the first moments of heaven. Our greatest joys don't even compare. And our deepest sorrows, our deepest valleys don't compare. Don't compare. Because all they're doing is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far exceeds all of this. That makes this even better, more satisfying and sweeter the very moment we experience it. Listen, if God can use the greatest evil imaginable to accomplish the greatest good imaginable, can you not trust him to be in control? That's my question. Can you not trust him that he loves you more than you could ever imagine? He loves you on your worst days, on your greatest failures, in the, on the days when you feel like, I am a total train wreck. What's he doing? He hasn't shirked away. He doesn't go and say, oh, I got to give him or her some space. You know what he's doing? He's wrapping his arms around you and says, you are my son. You are my daughter. I will never, ever, ever let you go. That's the kind of love we need. That's the kind of power and strength we need. That's the kind of father we need. That's the kind of God we need. That's the kind of answers we need. That's the kind of God we have. When you have that question answered, you can face anything, Christian. You can face anything. The gospel may not change your circumstances, 
but it will change you. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we need you. We admit that many of us may be like Habakkuk right now, wrestling things out still, asking the why question still. We know that at the end of Habakkuk, in, in just three short chapters, at the end, nothing changes. Your word remains. Your judgment will come through the Babylonians. And yet, and yet Habakkuk will say, though the fig tree doesn't bear fruit, though everything withers away, yet will I praise you. Yet will I rejoice in God my Savior. God, would you get us to that point? Would you get us to that point? We confess it's so easy to be overwhelmed by the evil around us and the, honestly, the evil inside of us. But God, help us. I'm praying right now, help us. Some of us need to lay out a burden right now, Lord. Right now, we, wherever we are, whether it's in here or there's someone's at home, they've been carrying a burden. They've been, they've been, there's a question burning in them and they want to ask it, Lord. They want answers. God, I pray right now they would lay it before you. I thank you that you're bigger than our biggest questions, that you can handle our deepest struggles. I pray that someone right now would be able to turn to Jesus for the first time and call out upon him as Savior. That maybe they've asked all kinds of questions, but the one question they've ever asked is, Jesus, can you save me? Can you forgive me? Can you rescue me? Father, I pray that that would happen right now. That there would be men and women, children, who hear the gospel and, and realize they may not understand it all, but they know that you love them unconditionally and want to receive them. That they would turn from sin and trust in Christ. God, you're doing a good work even when I don't understand it and I admit it. Help us. Help us as a family to walk by faith and not by sight. We need you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.